Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because they anchor us in something which can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. The scripture reading today is from 1 Timothy 1, 12-17. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a prosecutor, and a man of violence, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to have sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I received mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who come to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Annalise. All right, friends. Uh, We're going to do something very different today, uh, and that is... And I really, I mean, I'm like, can we do this? We're not going to do all play questions during the sermon today. I know that's very non-traditional of us. Please don't throw anything. Um, What I want to do instead is I'm going to give a talk on this question of, that Annalise just read, that if it is a trustworthy statement that Christ has come to save sinners, I want to talk about how that understanding has developed over the years, over the last 2,000 years in the church. I'm going to really unfold five different atonement theories for you. And the, and, and, and the goal is not to pick your favorite one, okay? Although, feel free if you want to. The goal is to see how according to a certain culture's understanding about God, the Bible, and culture, and trying to understand the mystery of the fact that in Christ we are saved from our sins by his death on the cross, how is it that we can understand that that makes us right with God? And we're gonna look at that in the first and second centuries, there was an understanding of how that worked that changed over time. The understanding of it changed. I want to say also on the front end that this is a mystery. We say it every week. This is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. So again, the goal is not to nail down the perfect orthodox view of a mystery. It's to continually keep trying to understand it. Amen? So uh, I am going to give you a chance to ask questions, though, and I think this will be really fun. So I'm going to leave a few minutes at the end, 
to voice your questions. And then before we post the podcast, I will spend some time answering those questions post-production, so to speak, right? So we'll do the talk, and then we'll do the questions, and then you'll have to tune back into the podcast to hear the answers, or I shouldn't say answers, but responses to those questions, okay? Um, I'm also going to make my very extended sermon notes and outline available for you on the Facebook community page. So don't spend a lot of time taking notes unless you want to. You're just going to get lost in notes. Just just tune into the Facebook page later if you want to. Got it? Write down your questions. So, everybody ready? Okay. So, what is the best way to understand how Jesus makes us right with God? Uh, the first view of atonement that we'll look at is called the ransom view or the Christus, Christus Victor view. This is a view that uh, our good friend, Dr. Gregory Boyd, uh, loves and prefers. Uh, and this view, in this view, uh, it is believed that Christ destroyed Satan and his works, thereby freeing us from slavery to sin. And sin is seen in this view as slavery to Satan, who kidnapped us and holds us captive. And so um, the people that believed in this one, Augustine, 4th and 5th century, Irenaeus in the 2nd century, uh, believe that um, Satan does have this power over us, but it's as if Satan kidnapped us and we have just learned to live life within that uh, captivity. And we feel like that's, that's normal. Uh, but Christ's work on the cross, his death and resurrection, his descent into hell, uh, is like a time bomb that blows up that view uh, that Satan has us held in, in captivity. And in this view, it's seen, Satan is seen to have been sort of tricked by the death of Jesus. Like Satan thought, this is it, death of Jesus, my, all, everything I've been working for, and you know, I don't know if Satan has those kinds of thoughts or expresses those kinds of thoughts, so forgive the anthropomorphization um, of that. Nailed it, did I? I don't think I did. Uh, and so when, so when Jesus died, Satan's like, yes, and then Christ even descended to hell, yes, but then went in hell, boom, uh, hell couldn't hold him. Jesus blew the doors off, and therefore there is now no more captivity. Uh, Matthew 20, 28 says this, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First uh, John 5, 19, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So this power that Satan has kidnapped us. Second Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So we can't even know that we're kidnapped. That's essentially what that Verses saying. And an example of this view of atonement is in one of our favorite books, uh, not such a great movie, but favorite books, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Edmund betrays the team. Edmund uh, it, it gets captured by the White Witch, who says, hey, a life for a life. So it's going to be either Edmund's life, but then Aslan, the lion, says, I will, I will, um, I will be the life, because a life is owed. So I I will be the life. And, um, and then uh, the witch is tricked because she thinks this is it. I've finally killed Aslan, but then the same thing. Aslan sort of blows the doors off of death, and he doesn't die, and neither does Edmund. And so the white witch walks away frustrated. Uh, so that was the view that was held for the first many centuries, the primary view. Uh, and you can see sort of the cultural understanding of certain sort of this mystical figure of evil that holds us all 
under captivity. But then the question must come, and even in your own minds, the question comes is, doesn't the ransom view uh, pick, like put Satan as having way too much power? Like, why does God owe Satan anything? God doesn't owe Satan a life. Satan is under God's power. And so uh, isn't the ransom view logically flawed? It gives Satan too much power. And so uh, along came a man called Anselm, the Bishop of Canterbury in the 11th century. And in the 11th century, it, we lived in a, we didn't live, they lived in a feudal environment where serfs lived underneath uh, a certain kingdom, owed their allegiance to a king, but every kingdom had a knight that would fight to protect the serfs, right? And the serfs, they owed uh, a duty of honor to that knight for protecting them. Um, and so, and you can think of lots and lots of movies and Robin Hood and stuff like that. And just, uh, and um, Princess Bride, you know, my name is Ennio Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die. Uh, that's an honor system. You killed, the six-fingered man killed Ennio Montoya's father. And so he's gonna risk his life to get satisfaction because his honor, his father's honor was besmirched. Uh, and I should get lots of points for using the word besmirched. Wasn't even in my notes, y'all. So uh, Anselm said, if we understand the feudal system, let's understand atonement according to the feudal system. Let's make it easy for people. And so he said, God is kind of like the overlord, um, and, but we have, we have not defend, we, we have not paid our duty of honor to the overlord because of our sin, that's our sin. But because uh, our sin is infinite and God is infinite, it's a, it's a debt that we can't pay. So enter Christ, the God-man, the only person that could, um, my name is Ennio Montoya, uh, you killed my father, prepare to die. He's the only one that actually can pay the infinite price, the infinite debt of honor in this feudal system. And so Anselm uh, said, it's really, like we need to solve the problem of giving Satan too much power. This view called the satisfaction view, that's the second view, solves that problem because it's not about paying Satan what Satan is due, it's about paying God what God is due. Does that make sense? It's about restoring honor to God who we have um, defrauded or again, whose honor we have besmirched. So Jesus satisfies God, not Satan, by his death on the cross. Uh, verses that, um, seem to underline this, Isaiah 53, 5, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, one has died for all. 1 Peter 2, 24, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And Romans 5, 6 through 8, Christ died for the ungodly. And again, the example is Princess Bride. Um, the fight is to gain satisfaction. If you've seen, if you've seen, movies like The Count of Monte Cristo or read that book, you know, people are always having duels, you know? I'll meet you at 6 a.m., who's your second? Bring your pistol, because someone's honor is um, tainted and you have to be willing to sacrifice your life, to risk your life, to gain your honor back. And so um, it was Anselm that, he just wrote a book, basically, with this idea, but it became the predominant view for about the next 500 years this one guy's view. Uh, but then the reformers came, our good friends Luther and Calvin, 
and I know for some of you, Luther is a better friend than Calvin, perhaps. Um, and they started asking this question, okay, now that we're moving out of the feudal system, um, I'm reading a lot about God's wrath in the Bible, they would say. Like, w- what about God's wrath against sin? I mean, is God's justice really satisfied uh, without a punishment of some kind? It seems like Christ being willing to sacrifice his life is a big deal, but sin is a bigger deal, and there should be punishment, right? And so the penal substitution view uh, comes up, and that's what really Luther and Calvin um, introduced. It's largely what most Western Christians still believe today, most evangelicals still believe today, and it's uh, the defrauding of God's honor incurs God's wrath, which can only be satisfied by a punishment. And so Christ is punishment on the cross as a substitution for us being punished on the cross. And sin in this view is seen as incurring God's wrath and the separation from God because of it and deserving eternal punishment because of sin. So Luther and Calvin were trying to introduce, beyond just a feudal understanding, they were trying to in- introduce a legal framework because that's what, um, that, that's what people understood more in, in, in a, as a court of law metaphor, that uh, they said, you know, this feudal lord thing is sort of, um, it, it doesn't work for us so much anymore, but, but an understanding in, in a court of law where there's a clear guilty party and a clear way of paying the penalty is probably going to be more helpful. And so the answer to the question, what about God's wrath, is this. Christ satisfies God's wrath, not just by being willing to sacrifice his life, but by receiving the punishment that we deserve. So again, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. There it is right there in the scriptures. John 3.16, which you might see at the football game later on today in the end zone with the guy with the, 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 guy with the fro, with the rainbow fro still, is he still out there? No, is that more Howard Cosell days, Brian McWhite? Uh, so John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So uh, there we have it. The penal substitutionary view answers the question of the satisfaction view, uh, which said it has to be more than just a willingness to sacrifice your life. It has to be punishment. Uh, and it's certainly more than just paying Satan what Satan owes. It must be paying God, what God owes. Uh, But then, as people continued to understand sin and theology and the church, they started asking more questions. Like, doesn't the satisfaction view and the penal substitutionary atonement view paint God out to be kind of overly harsh and unloving? More like an insecure, feudal lord that just needs his due. And is that really what God is like? Can't God just forgive us? If God is omnipotent, why can't God just say, you are forgiven? Why does God need a sacrifice to be made or punishment to be made? Does that make sense? That was the prevailing question for several hundred years. Um, And so, and I want you to see these views as like they're stacking one on top of the other. So you don't totally lose the previous views. You're just widening your scope. I also want to remind you, as questions come up, please write them down and then voice them at the end. Otherwise, I'll have nothing to react to in post-production, which would be very unfair to me. 
Um, so a guy named Abelard comes around in the 12th century, and he is quoted in saying this, how cruel and wicked it seems that anyone should demand the blood of an innocent person as the price for anything, or that it should in any way please him that an innocent man should be slain, still less that God should consider the death of his son so agreeable that by it he should be reconciled to the whole world. Did you catch that? So this is not just a, like a view of like love wins from Rob Bell in 2011. This argument has been around since the 12th century. If God really is love, how can it be that the most creative solution is the death of an innocent person? So the answer to the question, uh, the moral example view is the third view, uh, or we're at the fourth, we're at the fourth view, the moral example view. The cross demonstrates God's love for us by showing us how far God is willing to go to love us. And the argument is that because we're human beings that are designed to respond to love, that when we see the depths of God's love for us, just seeing it reforms us and makes us new. And so sin is seen in this, sin is real in all of these views, by the way. Sin is seen in this view as anything which keeps us from seeing and receiving God's love in its fullest extent. Uh, Romans 5, 8, but God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 38, for nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither height nor depth, you know the rest. And um, in the 19th century, a Swedish theologian that majorly influenced the covenant denomination, which we're a part of, did this two-year-long study about what is it that changed after the fall. And he said, I found zero verses in the Bible that said that anything in God changed. God's heart did not change toward us after sin. God's heart remained loving. God's heart remained connected. God's heart remained desirous that all should be saved. The change occurred in us. So the fix needs to be in us. And so um, P.P. Waldenstrom said, because no change occurred in God's heart after the fall, Christ's work on the cross is not essential to render a wrathful God gracious again. The work of Christ on the cross is the gracious work of the Father. Does that make sense? So an example of this one would be Les Miserables, right? Jean Valjean is in prison for stealing a loaf of bread, stays in prison for 20 years, gets out, stays at the house of a priest who shows him love, and what does he do? He steals the silver, gets caught, the police bring him back, and the priest, instead of grabbing his silver and taking it back, says, oh, my friend, you've forgotten the candlestick. And the police go away, and Jean Valjean is so wrecked by that act of love that that's what changes his life. It was a moral demonstration of sacrificial love that wrecked him. It wasn't punishment, wasn't seeing someone else be punished, it was the depth of love being shown. So that's what Abelard and P.P. Waldenstrom and others say uh, is the next movement in understanding. Take sin very seriously, but it defines sin as anything which keeps us from seeing or receiving the depths the depth of God's love. And once we do, 
we realize God never moved. Um, and Christ's work on the cross is God hanging on the cross, showing us how far God will go. Okay. So the last view um, is not necessarily a move directly from the moral example view, but it is a view um, that is the most recent. And the question is, especially when you're thinking about the penal substitutionary atonement view or any view which requires the sacrifice of someone and the, end, the ending of life, the question is, how can violence of any kind end violence, even if God commands that violence? So if God commands violence to end violence, the saying, the, there's a moral paradox there that's illogical and not solvable. And another question that comes up is, how do Christians who have suffered generationally view atonement? Uh, Christians who um, have history of slavery in our country, uh, African Americans, uh, Latinos, how do they view the atonement? And is it any different? So the scapegoat theory uh, came around, people like Rene Girard, and it says this, the cross demonstrates the scapegoating inherent in all violence. Uh, and that Christ brings an end to violence by innocently suffering the violence, thus exposing the violence for what it is. So sin is seen as the covetousness which leads to violence and ultimately to scapegoating others for your own wrongdoing. The scapegoat theory addresses the question of when we decide that our helplessness and our rage and our fear and our anger and our sin is too much to bear, we place it on somebody else. And we do this unconsciously largely. And this is a, a, a metaphor that comes from out of Leviticus where they literally used to, the priests used to take a poor little goat and they would ceremonially put all the sin on that goat. And then it would be someone's job to take that goat out into the wilderness and let it go. And that was ceremonially the, the being that took all the sin away from the people. And so in this view, Jesus is seen as the final scapegoat who willingly became that, that goat that was led out of, into the wilderness and was let go, who willingly took on that violence so that violence could be ended. Rene Girard, 20th century philosopher, theologian, says this, instead of blaming victimization on victims, the gospel blames it on the victimizers. And what the myths systematically hide, the Bible reveals. And so when the crowd is shouting for, to crucify Christ, the crowd is then um, named the guilty one, not the Christ. The Christ on the cross is named the innocent one who goes to his death to end all violence. So there we have the five views. I'm tempted to ask for a show of hands to see what your favorite one is, but I won't. What I want to do instead is ask, what questions does that raise for you uh, that you would love to talk about more? Well, hey, everybody. This is Steve again. We are in post-production. It's Thursday afternoon. And that was so fun, what we did on Sunday. Uh, I've been getting some good feedback from those of you, mostly geeks, I think, that enjoyed looking at 
the progression of thought on how it is that we understand that Jesus Christ saves sinners through his death on the cross, also called the atonement theory. So I hope that was helpful listening to those five. Now I will spend a little bit of time uh, answering the questions that came up. And so uh, I wish I had more time. I just, I don't think it would be super helpful to make this podcast eight hours long. Uh, So I will give a broad overview of my responses to these questions. So the first question that came up was, uh, what is Christian universalism? So Christian universalism is the idea that the correct interpretation of Christianity and the Bible is not that what has been called the fundamentalist view that you have to convert to Christianity by saying certain words or you will burn in hell forever. Uh, uh, but it's more of an in- inclusive view of salvation in which Christian universalists believe that Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on the cross uh, saves eventually everybody. Uh, everybody in this view will eventually find reconciliation with God by actually repenting of their sins and going through a transformation process so that nobody will spend spend eternity in hell. Now, there is a view of hell within Christian universalism. Some call it purgatory, but it's only any time that anyone would spend in hell would be uh, in order to repent of their sins, in order to see the true fullness of God that perhaps they didn't see in their life. So that Christian universalists believe that even after death, even in hell, people have the chance of repenting. And the reason why they believe this is they believe if God is a God of love and if Christ's work on the cross really does reconcile all people to God, as it says in the scriptures, then it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make moral sense that their God would... uh, require people to pay for their sins by suffering eternally in hell. So um, this view is based on the New Testament declaration that God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself, not accusing it for its sins, and that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save, to heal, to restore the whole world, not to condemn it. So again, that was a broad brush. Lots of questions, I'm sure, But you need to know that even within our denomination, the Covenant Church, um, there are Christian universalists, and you can be a pastor and be a Christian universalist within the Covenant, and that can be um, an orthodox understanding of atonement. Not everybody agrees with it. I think it's probably a minority view, but that's just uh, something that you should know. It's interesting. Second question, do people have to specifically respond in faith to Christ using certain words to know and, and to know that they are responding to Christ with certain words in order to be saved? Uh, another question that came up later is essentially the same question, so I'll repeat it here and I'll answer it uh, with the same answer, uh, and that was, why do we think people need to believe certain things in order to be saved? Not exactly the same question, but close enough. And so... Uh, this this question and this belief that um, that you do have to respond in faith to Christ, knowing Christ and saying certain words, comes right from the Bible. Romans ten nine and ten says this: If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So that seems super clear. But then questions come up like, uh, what about someone who was born without the ability to speak or even the ability to understand? What about someone that is born um, with a mental or even physical disability where they can never declare with their mouth that Jesus is Lord? What if someone has a mental deficiency where they can't quite get their theological mind around the concept that God raised Jesus from the dead? Will they be saved or not? And that's a really tricky question. Uh, Another question is, what about, and this is even trickier, but what about someone from another religion? Maybe they were, you know, born uh, Shia Muslim, and they seem to have experienced God in a profound way, and your experience with them seems to, they, they seem just to have the fruit of the Spirit, kindness, wisdom. Uh, they seem to have a connection with God, a relationship with God. But then you say, but wait a minute, they don't, they haven't declared with their mouth Jesus is Lord. They haven't believed in their heart that God raised them from the dead. So they must not be saved. And many people believe that. Um, but some people, C.S. Lewis would have been one of them, believe that it's possible for Jesus to save people but the person might not know it. So in C.S. Lewis's famous uh, seven-book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, the last book was called The Last Battle. And there are these calormines that serve a different god called Tash. Uh, C.S. Lewis didn't believe that all gods were the same. He believed in his allegory, which is what The Chronicles of Narnia essentially is, although he doesn't call it an allegory. Um, there, there is the God of Aslan, and then there is the God of Tash, and they're different. But this one soldier, Calarmine soldier, um, served Tash his whole life, and then dies, uh, and he encounters Aslan face-to-face for the first time. And he says this to Aslan, Lord, I am no son of yours, but I'm a servant of Tash, he admits to the great lion. And then, here's what Aslan says, here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. Uh, child, Aslan answers, all the service that you did to Tash, I count as service done to me. If any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn, though he know it not, and it is I who reward him. Now, that is a, yes, it's a story, and yes, it's an allegory, but that is a very, very poignant uh, showing of what C.S. Lewis apparently believed that people could serve Christ and be saved by Christ and be following Christ without knowing it. Uh, Theologian Karl Rahner called these people anonymous Christians, those who enjoy the grace that comes through Jesus alone. So it's Jesus that brings it, Jesus that saves them. No one's denying that. But it's possible, even though they never explicitly put their faith in Christ. So that is definitely um, somewhat controversial. On the other hand, it gives you a little room for mystery. Uh, You don't have to say, 
all people, you could say some people have experienced salvation through Christ, but they don't know it yet. Um, okay, <clears throat> next question. Why did God allow choice if God knew we would all sin anyway? Isn't that a setup? So there's this midrash, and midrashes are um, imaginative, essentially conversations that the rabbis would have with one another over the course of centuries. They would write them down, and there would be just interpretations of certain passages that would use imagination to try to solve a problem like this question. So one midrash on the Garden of Eden has Adam and Eve growing up, growing up in the garden without the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there's no possibility of them sinning and plucking the fruit, so to speak. But in the midrash, um, Adam and Eve never grow up. They, because there's no choice, because there's no temptation, they never learn to choose the right thing. And so they essentially remain infants their whole life. So in this midrash, God's, God starts over, you know, again and again and again without the tree. And the same thing happens every time. And it's only when the tree is put in the garden that the humans um, learn what it is to choose the right thing and walk away from the wrong thing. And it's even only through choosing the wrong thing that you understand your need for something else. So that's fascinating. And um, another verse that seems to speak to God's desire for choice is Revelation 3.20, where we read God speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and lets me in. So there's this, there's this very intimate and vulnerable God giving us the choice to choose or not. Now, I want to go quickly back to Christian universalism because um, the knock many people have against universalism, Christian universalism, is that they say it takes away choice. But Christian universalists would not say that choice is taken away. They would say that every person that does ultimately receive faith in Christ does need to have their sins forgiven. Um, they, they need to go through that movement. Um, Christian universalists simply say that at death, when you meet God for the first time and you experience God's love and grace for real, face-to-face, that, it, that it's irresistible. So that maintains choice, um, but it's just irresistible. And for some of you, that makes that's a philosophical fallacy, perhaps a logical fallacy. Um, but you can take that to a different conversation, which would be fun. Um, another view about choice and about the future is put forth in Greg Boyd's book, God of, God of, Pos- God of the Possibility, the God of the Possible, sorry. And it essentially sets up, it answers the question, how is it that God knows the future? And how is it that we have choice if God knows everything we will ever do, doesn't that mean that our choices are actually predetermined? So uh, the God of the possible, that view is also called open theism, uh, believes that God knows all things that have ever happened and will ever happen, that God knows all possibilities of everything that could happen, depending on choice and everything that will, um, that, that might happen but that it is illogical 
to say that God knows everything that will happen if, in fact, the future is still open. If the future is determined by your choices, then it's not a blueprint and it's not predetermined. It exists as possibilities, and God can know all the possibilities, but this view says essentially God can't know what is not set to know. So if the, view, if, if the future really is open, depending on your choices, if we really do have choice, then it makes no logical sense that God knows exactly the path that you will take in the sense that um, it's predetermined or already set. Again, God knows the possibilities that exist, but, and this is funky, maybe, maybe it's freeing too, that if you really do have choice, then God can't know something that hasn't been chosen yet because it's not there to know. Okay, next question. How do all these atonement theories compare to the atonement theory in the Hebrew scriptures? And so, uh, theological usage of the term atonement in the Hebrew scriptures or Old Testament refers to essentially a cluster of ideas that center on the cleansing of sin, the cleansing of impurity. And that needs to happen regularly or else in the belief at the time, God would leave the temple and leave the presence of the people. And so in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old, Ten in the Old Testament, atonement, uh, which is translated kipper, is accomplished through the dashing or sprinkling of blood of the purification offering or sin offering, which is done by the priests in the temple on particular temple furnishings on the altar or such. And uh, atonement or kipper occurs most often in the sacrificial texts like Leviticus and stuff. And uh, kipper is also performed over the scapegoat in Leviticus 16.10, but that only happens on the day of atonement, which is Yom Kippur, or it comes from the word kipper, atonement. That's the most important day in ancient Jewish liturgical calendar the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, um, because that was when the supreme sacrificial rituals of the year were performed. That was when the scapegoat rite was performed. And in that rite, um, someone, someone's job was to pick a scapegoat, an actual goat, and march them, first of all, ceremoniously, put all the sin of the people onto that goat, and then march them out into the wilderness and leave them there to die. So that's a very symbolic picture of God removing the sin of the people um, by putting it on one person or one being. Of course, you can see why in later in the New Testament, Jesus Christ in his sacrificial death on the cross, he was referred to sometimes as a sacrificial lamb or a sacrifice. Um, that's all ways that the New Testament is trying to explain this mystery of the atonement the people that that understand the ritual of sacrifice and blood. And so um, that would make sense to them. Okay, last question. Um, does our understanding of the atonement continually evolve? And I would say yes and no. And I want to be clear on this one. Uh, no in the sense that all Christian atonement theories are attempting to explain how the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ is how people are made right with God. That's that is what atonement is in Christian theology. If it would move away from that question of how the death and resurrection of Christ somehow mysteriously saves people from sin, um, then it would no longer be talking about atonement. And so in that sense, it's, it's not evolving. 
And so even I want to underline the point that even as I went through those five different atonement theories, and maybe you were drawn to one or another, maybe one or more seemed repugnant, maybe one seemed attractive, or maybe one seemed familiar, maybe one seemed unfamiliar. Uh, All of them, all of them are talking about how it is that Jesus the Christ saves us from our sin and makes us right with God through his death and resurrection on the cross. And so anything that, that moves away from that fundamental understanding is a great conversation and a great question, but you would then move away from Christian atonement theory. So that would be how it does not evolve. How I think it does evolve is just what we saw in the progression uh, of those five atonement theories through history. It starts with a certain, uh, the, the Christus Victor or the ransom view puts Satan as almost like having this magical power. Um, and then as we move forward into history, and by the time we get to the Reformation and really the penal substitutionary atonement theory is in place. Now we're talking about um, a framework of law uh, and um, and um, something that was much less um, magical and much more cerebral. And so because people were expanding their knowledge of the world and of each other and of God, an understanding of the atonement needed to expand as well. And so in that sense, I think our understanding of the atonement will always evolve as cultures change. And now like in the United States of America, we, we, don't have, we don't have an understanding of sacrifice, really. Um, in fact, that, that word feels medieval and weird and, um, and spooky. And so it would make sense to continually try to explain how it is that the death and resurrection of Christ makes people right with God in a culture that doesn't have any idea really or history with sacrifice um so um for example we still use the phrase god's kingdom and your kingdom come because it's in the lord's prayer and but that 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 phrase is sprinkled around in christian circles but again in most of the western world there's there's you you there there's the, even when there are kingdoms and queens like in great britain there, there's not the same understanding in the in the time in the Old Testament in the time of Christ. Uh, if you lived in a kingdom, you were utterly subject to the character of that king. If that king was good and took care of their people, then you would have a good life. If that king was greedy and wanted to tax you excessively, then you were going to have a terrible life. And so, um, when the New Testament talked about Jesus bringing God's kingdom it was really essentially talking about um, the, the, the way that God works, which is healing and forgiving and redeeming and making friends out of enemies. That's what happens in God's kingdom. So when God's kingdom comes, that means that kind of activity is breaking into the world. And so, but in our day and age, we need some different language to even explain what that means. Kingdom uh, very biblical, beautiful, um, but it's hard to understand. So we need, we always need new language, right? Okay, next question: What is spiral dynamics? Um, I'm going to say mostly for this one. Look it up. Google spiral dynamics is essentially uh, a psychological framework for understanding how human beings develop over time 
and how they understand right and wrong, how they, uh, how they form in relationships to one another, and how, though, how depending on what level or stage of human development they are in, that will greatly um, determine the kinds of choices they make. And so spiral dynamics is really fascinating. It's a really great way to understand why certain people disagree on certain things and even come to blows theologically. But if you're in different levels, according to spiral dynamics, um, you're, you're, you don't know it, but you're not, even, you're not even arguing about the same thing. And so super quickly, you know, there's eight colors which correspond to the stages. And again, you really have to look this up. But the beige stage is um, the basic motivation of survival. This is ancient, ancient cavemen. It's archaic, instinctive, basic, automatic. You killed people if you, they were dangerous. Um, and almost no human beings are in the beige stage anymore. And then moving up from the beige stage as human beings developed, uh, was into the purple stage and um, how they structured themselves is through tribes. This is really much of the early Hebrew scriptures. Um, the motivations are, you know, magic and safety. They, if this is where you believe that um, if your crop got destroyed, it was because the gods were angry with you and you had to make sacrifices. It's animistic, tribalistic, magical, mystical, not rational. It's pre-rational. Uh, the next stage is, is red and, um, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's approximated that 20% of, of people on planet earth right now are still in the red stage. And so, um, the structure is empires and it's power and dominance. Um, and, uh, it's egocentric, it, it's exploitative, it's impulsive, it's rebellious. Um, many people, uh, talk about certain kinds of autocratic leaders, dictators. This is the red stage and, uh, sort of like, if I have the biggest gun, I have the biggest power, and it's all about domination. The next stage, which is 40% of the people, the most, the most percentage of the, of the population lives in the blue stage. And, um, and the motivations here are to stay in order. It's right and wrong. It's absolutistic. It's obedient. It's purposeful. It's authoritarian. It follows the rules. It believes that there's one way, and it's right, and there's another way, and it's wrong, and there's not a whole lot of gray. Um, and it's safe because you know what to expect. The next stage is orange, and um, the motivations there are autonomy and achievement. This is sort of like the scientific mind. It's materialistic and strategic. It's ambitious. It's individualistic. It believes it can break out of the rules, of the system of rules of right and wrong. And, um, and it, um, it, it, it's like... The in sort of like what happened in the Enlightenment when we understood different things about science. Uh, the next stage up is green, and uh, the motivation in green is approval, equality, community. Uh, this is like pluralistic, relativistic, sensitive. Um, people can be very, very, people in the green stage can be very actually self righteous in their belief that everybody's right, except for if they disagree with you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and then there's two more stages, seven and eight, but it's, it's so, it's, it's in a different tier entirely and almost only 1% of the population is even, even there. So 
that's spiral dynamics. Again, if you if you're interested in that, it's 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 a way to understand the differences in the world and why people disagree, and how how uh, to have a little more compassion on someone with whom you disagree and how to understand them. Okay, uh, last question is: What about the human need for blood and revenge? Um, is is that part of why we see the death and resurrection of Christ and blood? And I think that's a fascinating question. It gets far more psychological. Um, and I don't quite know how to answer it other than yes. I think that's the last theory that I threw out there was the scapegoat theory. I think that's essentially where we're at now. It's like that's that's a that's a better understanding, I think, these days than sacrifices, is that we can understand our sort of desire to um to be so uncomfortable and even threatened and by and afraid of our own um sin, our own uh, propensity to do the wrong thing, that when the opportunity arises to cast all the blame on another group of people, it's all about them, they're the problem, they're what's wrong, and you stir up a lot of fear doing that, or a person itself, then that's, that is the way that you make sense of and feel better about yourself is by making someone else the scapegoat. And I think um, that's why when you look at that fifth view of atonement as Christ voluntarily, as God, hanging on the cross, suffering with those who suffer, showing that violence will never end violence, showing that the only way to defeat violence and to end violence is ultimately to lay down one's life and, and to become the willing scapegoat thereby freeing people of having to scapegoat others. And so in that sense, they're theologically set free from sin, but they're also um, sociologically, if you understand it right, when you are free from blaming other people, you are truly free, right? When you experience forgiveness in such a profound way from God and you understand that God hung on the cross as a willing scapegoat, to set you free from your sins so that you can be with God for eternity, yes, but also live your life here and now free from the prison of blaming people, free from the suffering that you inflict upon yourself from uh, blaming people and insisting on scapegoating. Now we're talking about um, a good, I think, current answer to what we do with our own need for blood. Uh, okay, folks, that is all the time we have. <laughs> Hope this was helpful, this extended view. Uh, that was fun. Um, thanks for taking that risk and doing something different. Uh, it was a really interesting way um, for me to preach in a different way and to interact in a different way. So grace and peace, my friends, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If you find yourself nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if you have, have any questions or would, or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscove.org.